This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal discusses her book, Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. She's interviewed by Democratic colleague Jim Himes of Connecticut. Well, Pramila, um, uh, thank you for the conversation and, and um, thank you for writing the book. I, I, I have to tell you, it was a real pleasure reading the book. Um, one of my enduring frustrations in Washington is that we work together when we're in Washington 18 hours a day um, and there is almost no opportunity for us to get to know each other as people. You know, every once in a while you make a few friends and stuff, but what a remarkable, um, you know, what a remarkable story here. Um, uh, you, uh, you arrive, I guess, in the United States at age 17, never having been here, born in India, educated, I guess, in Indonesia, um, granddaughter of, a, of an Indian uh, British Rajhera police officer, um, remarkable uh, uh, mother and father, so motivated. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about immigration, because, of course, immigration has been the policy issue that has suffused your your uh, public service. Um, so let's start with a little bit of what that was like when you, you, know, you, you say in the book that you got out of the, you, you landed in the airport with two suitcases and that was it. That's right, Jim. And thank you so much for um, taking the time to do this. And you're right. It's such a, it's such a pleasure to be able to have an in-depth conversation with a colleague, something we just don't get to do. Um, so yes, I, I landed here just a few months before I turned 17. I came by myself. Uh, my dad had about 5,000 bucks in his bank account and he used all of it to send me here because he really believed this was the place I was going to get the best education and have the most opportunity. So I show up at JFK airport with my two suitcases because that's all you were allowed to bring without having to pay for, you know, more baggage. And we didn't have any money to pay for more baggage. Um, and I just remember, and I write about this in the book, just how strange it was, you know, to see, um, first of all, not the diversity of people that I was used to seeing, even though New York City is pretty diverse in the grand scheme of things. Uh, a lot of physical displays of affection that I wasn't used to seeing in, in Asia. Um, smells of McDonald's and Burger King, which, you know, you sort of dreamt about when you were in Indonesia, uh, but they hadn't made it to, to that part of the world yet. And then, of course, just being in a completely new place, um, you know, with, with a completely new environment, not really knowing if you were going to fit in, how you were going to fit in. Um, I went to Georgetown University undergraduate here in the nation's capital. And um, I remember when I landed uh, at Georgetown and I went to the foreign student office to get all my information and they said, um, I said something about being a foreign student, but not having gotten my rooming assignment. And the guy who was very well-meaning, I think all he heard was foreign student. And he stopped and he said, do you speak English? And um, I remember saying, just being so surprised by that and saying, jokingly saying, um, well, I, I do, but only if you talk very slowly. <laughs> so that was the beginning of my entry to the United States. And, and uh, I don't think I could have ever dreamt that I would be sitting here talking to you as a member of Congress. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and uh, it's, a, it's a magnificently intimate portrait. I mean, I would encourage people to read the book just, uh, just to see how somebody arrives at age 17 in the United States for the first time ever and the personal evolution that results in, in that person becoming a member of uh, a member of Congress. But 
So one of the reasons this conversation is going to be fun is that you are a, a high-profile leader of the, of the progressive uh, wing of the, of the Democratic Party, and I'm a leader of the New Democrat Coalition, uh, the more centrist wing. Um, and uh, one of the things that was fun about your book is um, anybody who wants to stereotype uh, progressives um, is going to have to grapple with the fact that you went to business school, you worked on Wall Street, and you worked for a medical device corporation. So um, uh, I, I, that's a wonderfully rich portrait of how the world is so much more complicated than the, stere than the political stereotypes would suggest. Um, t t talk a little bit about that and how, you know, having actually worked in the private sector informs uh, how you think about issues that affect the private sector. Yeah, well, that, that stems from, you know, my dad wanted me to be the CEO of IBM. He was like, if I'm going to take all my savings and send you across the ocean, you better be either a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. Those are the three acceptable professions. Politician Jim was not one of them. Um, and so when I went to college, I got a degree in economics, but somewhere along the way, I decided that I wanted to be an English lit major and called my dad with the one phone call I had a year to tell him I was going to be an English major. And he, he screamed at me and said, you know, I didn't send you to the United States to learn how to speak English. You already know how to speak English. Um, and so I promised him that I would go work, get the same job with an English degree that I would have gotten with an economics degree. And at that time, this is the mid 1980s, Mike Milken was king. Wall Street was the place you wanted to work. If you were, you know, if you were smart and competitive, that was the thing you tried to go do. And so that's what I did. I went to work on Wall Street. I worked for Payne Weber um, in investment banking. I did a lot of things that no 20 year old should ever have done, frankly, um, you know, representing companies in bankruptcy proceedings and working on leverage buyouts. And I realized it wasn't for me. But one of the things I tell people I mentor all the time is that it's really important to find out what you don't want to do just as much as find out what you do want to do. Um, and also the skills that you gain along the way are invaluable. And so anybody can put a spreadsheet in front of me. Um, I worked on very complex 300 page spreadsheets back before Excel was a thing, you know, back in the Lotus one, two, three days. Um, and I can find the errors. I understand financial statements. I went on to get a master's in business. I worked in economic development. I sold medical defibrillators in Ohio and Indiana. And I feel like every single one of those things has made me better prepared for being in Congress. Because I think um, just sort of as you, as you were implying, you know, people think about a progressive as being uh, somehow completely divorced from business, not understanding economics. I, I don't think those portrayals are true. Um, but I think people are always surprised to hear about my background. But it's really helped inform my view of Wall Street accountability, of the need to support Main Street, um, and about what actually makes good economic sense. What is pragmatic and practical um, in my world is based on how I think about what the future looks like from, uh, from an economic perspective as well as a social perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really a uh, really interesting uh, biography. I actually uh, related, I worked at a bank uh, for a while, and, and just to be clear, I was much more responsible because I was 22 when I was doing that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> a whole two years older than me. You must have been know, right? full of wisdom. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you uh, 100%. I, like you, uh, enjoyed that. Well, I, I felt like I was learning a lot. And, and actually, an awful lot of the negotiation skills, an awful lot of the writing skills, the, you know, the selling skills, if you will, that are important to politics, I actually did learn in the private sector. So I related to that. 
Um, but then you make a wonderful transition, and hopefully this allows us to transition into the issue that I think really animates your book. Um, you know, you're not satisfied. Uh, you're, you're not feeling that sort of soulful engagement uh, uh, in, the, in the private sector. You, you go abroad, I guess, to a, um, uh, a camp on the Thai border. But, but all of a sudden now, uh, the, the, the whole concept of immigration um, uh, you come to you, you say in the book that you understand what drives migrants. So let's let's talk a little bit about immigration because that's so much your story, and of course it is at the core of sadly not the policy debate in the United States today. We don't debate policy. Um, we sort of play defense um, against a president who has, as I tell my constituents, he has created this red hot core of anger um, and uh, uh, baloney, quite frankly, uh, you know, describing immigrants as criminals, um, you know, the, given where you come from, given, you know, this book, which is really as suffuse as the immigration debate with morality, I think probably drawing on your own experience, um, you know, here we are at a moment where we are probably having the most dysfunctional um, non-conversation about immigration that I can remember. So, so what, um, uh, I, I know 9-11 was important to you, but walk us through kind of what gets you to this, to get, really gets you so passionate about, uh, about moral, moral immigration policy. Well, you know, I think when I was um, in Thailand, and this was the summers between graduate school, I had this opportunity. I was working for three months in Thailand for the largest nonprofit. And I happened to go to site two, which was the largest refugee camp at the time, mostly refugees from Cambodia and Laos, and um, it was a stunning experience for me. I mean, really deeply moving um, to see people fleeing bombs. In fact, there, were, there, there was a bombing in the camp just days before I arrived there. So it was still a very active camp in that sense. Um, you know, most of the folks there thought they were going to be there for a very short time before being able to get permanently settled again, coming out of war, losing children, losing families. And you just see the resilience that people have. And you see how difficult um, life is for people who are escaping terrible, terrible situations, economic situations, drought, war. Um, and it was the formation. I don't think I thought about it as immigration or migration in the moment. Um, I think I was just experiencing what was happening. But it was definitely a core piece of how I have related to the issue of immigration when, it, when it's about other people. Because my experience as an immigrant obviously suffuses everything, as you said, but it was relatively privileged, as hard as it was. Um, I, you know, I spoke the language, uh, I, I went to college, um, all these different things that allowed my experience to be a lot easier than most of the people I worked with. Later, um, when I switched from the private sector, I actually worked in international health and development for several years running a loan fund. And I worked all over the world. I worked in India, Africa, Asia, um, Latin America, everywhere. And again, I saw sort of the challenges that are the root causes of migration. And that has always been my orientation is how do we think about immigration in terms of root causes of sending countries? How do people get here? And then when 9-11 hit, I think then I started thinking about it from the perspective of being a U.S. citizen, being an immigrant here in the United States, what does our immigration policy need to be? And um, really became very, very ensconced in that, started what ended up being the largest immigrant advocacy organization in Washington State. In fact, many of our 
you know, policies in Washington were one of the best states along with California for immigrants to live. And I think a lot of that is because of the work that we did over the last two decades um, to preserve dignity and rights and opportunity for everybody. And so I got to know the policy detail of immigration too. And I talk about, Jim, in the book how, you know, there is such a lack of nuance to the debate about immigration in this country, when in fact the immigration system is so unbelievably complex. And everybody has a story to tell about immigration, unless you're Native American. And of course, if you're African American, you were brought over on slave ships unwilling. So it's a very different situation. But everybody else has a story to tell about a parent or a grandparent or a great-grandparent coming to the United States and the moral core of the identity that forms the United States of America as a nation of immigrants. And so um, that has been, I think, uh, very important to me to make sure that we explain to the American people how we have not had a system of immigration laws. We've had a few laws here and there. We've had a few times in history when a president has managed to move and a Congress has managed to move a complete overhaul of immigration laws forward. But it's been decades. I mean, our system has not been fixed in decades. There's been no major change. And that's untenable for a country that has such deep economic needs, such deep societal and familial needs, and whose identity is focused on uh, the role of immigrants in building our country. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that that's absolutely right. And, and um, one of the things that's painful, I think, for all of us um, that aren't sort of subscribers to the president's point of view on immigration, which I think is a deeply immoral point of view, and we're going to come back to how morality suffuses our, our policy, um, is that it's just built on lies, right? I mean, as you point out, we are a nation of immigrants. Secondly, if you talk to business people, uh, say, um, you know, and you don't even take the moral approach, they will tell you, you know, absolutely essential to our economy to have more robust immigration. And that's across the board, right? That's the software programmer in Washington State. And that, of course, is the agricultural worker and the folks that are, you know, unseen, today deemed essential, ironically, but unseen in our restaurants and our contracting businesses and that sort of thing. So, um, so describe for us, because it's not hard to look at the current mess, and it's a mess by any standards. It's a moral mess. And let's come back to family separation, because I think that's a nice bridge to thinking in moral terms. But, but describe what you think, since, since this is really your thing and has been for decades, if you could wave a magic wand and, you know, American immigration policy would change overnight, what would it look like and how does that compare to the bill? Um, you weren't here in Washington yet, but a bill passed the United States Senate a couple of years, what was it, five or six years ago with 67 senatorial votes. And, it, you know, it had a very difficult path to citizenship for the 11 or 12 million undocumented people in this country. It had advanced sort of uh, employment uh, identification and verification um, all sorts of things, but it got 67, 68 votes in the Senate. Uh, so t tell us what your view of a good immigration policy would look like and how does it compare to what got through in the Senate in very strong bipartisan manner um, five or six years ago? Yeah, and I was on the outside pushing for that bill and it had a lot of compromises, frankly, that not all of us liked, but um, it had the major components. And the key thing here to think about is, 
you know, a lot of Americans will say, oh, you know, because of what the president has said or people before the president, frankly, this issue has been a political football for a long time. He's just taken to to a completely new level in demonizing immigrants, something no other president before him has done in the same way in recent history. But um, the first thing is, you know, people say, oh, you should get in line. Well, you have to understand there is no line in the United States. There is no system for people to even come here legally. And I'll just give myself as an example. I've been on visas my entire life, but it took me 18 years to get my citizenship for a whole host of reasons. I came in on a student visa. And so the first thing we need to do is we need to rectify the system so there are actually processes that are easy for people to navigate, whether you're coming here on a business visa, whether you're coming here to join family, or whether um, you are coming here to work temporarily or be a student. Those quotas that, have, that were set three decades ago, those need to be completely updated. Now, in addition to that, that's, that allows you to have a, a functioning system going forward. In addition to that, you have to provide a pathway to citizenship for the 12 million undocumented immigrants that are here. Why? Well, these are folks who primarily have been living here for 15 to 17 years, decades. And it's hypocritical for us to say, well, they shouldn't be allowed to stay, when in fact, if they all left, Jim, if they were all deported, first of all, it would cost the taxpayers an enormous <laughs> amount of money. But secondly, if they all left, the entire economy would collapse. And so let's recognize that we haven't had a system that's allowed them to do the work we need them to do, but also to be able to stay. And they are American in all ways, except that piece of paper. So give them a path to citizenship and allow them to come out of the shadows and be full contributors and understand when they do that. Which, which by the way, is a position, um, you know, today that seems exotic because of the way President Trump talks about the undocumented. But that concept, a mere half decade ago, actually had substantial Republican support because Republicans understood, if nothing else, that our food supply chain, our farms, uh, our, our meat packing plants, in which we're seeing so much tragedy, simply don't work without that, uh, without that population. That's right. It's and actually, in spite, right? Of what, that's right. And in spite of what Trump has said, what you said is exactly right. There is still substantial support for a path to citizenship. It's kind of amazing given the demonization that Trump has done. But you know, my growers who are all staunch Republicans in Eastern Washington and Central Washington, um, the businesses, the Chamber of Commerce, um, there is clear sense there that we need a path to citizenship and comprehensive and humane reform, just as it is clear to human rights activists, you might get there for different reasons, but um, for everybody, people understand that we need to fix this system. And then third, Jim, I would say that we need to make sure that we have hu humanitarian ways for people to continue to see the United States as that beacon of hope and light. So our asylum uh, processes, our refugee resettlement processes, you know, the, and this is another area where there's traditionally been very bipartisan support. Speaker Pelosi always likes to talk about the evangelicals who call our refugee resettlement program the crown jewel of humanitarianism. So I think this is another place where Donald Trump has destroyed everything that has to do with people seeking refuge. 
He's absolutely shut down the refugee resettlement program. We're barely taking any. He's shut down the asylum program. We're barely taking any. He's shut off all legal ways for people to come. So we should be clear that Donald Trump's opposition is not just to undocumented immigrants. It is to all legal immigration. That's why he tried to ban student visas, you know, people who were here on student visas. It's why he's tried to shut down legal immigrant programs for people who are coming here to work, H-1Bs, spousal visas. He's rolled back all of that. So let's just be clear, his agenda and the agenda of the white nationalists and Stephen Miller and others who are around him in the White House is no immigration. And this country will die without immigration. That is just clear. So, so um, I agree with your statement that probably no president has made immigration such a toxic part of their approach. Sadly, however, um, this is at some level, same old, same old. Read the way that Chinese immigrants were talked about in the late, in the late um, uh, 1800s. Uh, absolutely brutalized and dehumanized on the West Coast. And of course, that's been the experience of every wave of immigrants, the, the Irish Catholics, the Italians, the Mediterranean immigrants, they were very different, of course, from the German and the, and, the, and the Northern European immigrants. I mean, this is sadly a very strong recurring theme. And it's ironic, right? Because as you point out, you know, all of us came from somewhere unless, we're, unless we are indigenous to the, to, the, uh, to the continent. So let's try to get behind the policy and the politics of this. At some level, that's sort of absurd. Right. You know, that this country uh, that says its value is all about, you know, uh, uh, immigration and being a beacon unto the world and all of this stuff that for 240 years, practically, this country has also been absolutely brutal to the latest wave of immigrants. What's going on there and how do we change that? Because if we don't change that, there will be a demagogue. You know, if it's happened in 240 years in the past, it's going to happen in the future. There will be a demagogue who just decides to pick on the latest round of immigrants. How do we change that? Well, we have to fix the policy and it requires doing it in spite of what people say. Every immigration reform that has ever happened has happened with tremendous resistance. And yet the president that has, you know, overseen that has, uh, has actually moved it forward despite any concerns that he might have about what the reaction might be because it is what is good for the country. And in some ways that's what happened with civil rights. It's what happens with every difficult transition that a country has to make. You don't wait for people to get the polling to the right place. You just do it and you do it quickly so that you remove that obstacle, that political football from the field because let's be clear it will continue to divide us and you're right that america has had a very complex history with immigration i talk about it in the book you know it's sort of a love-hate relationship and um and i think that that has to do with the fact that fear of the other can really be used and you see it as donald trump's playbook is fear of the other and so our work has to be for people to reconnect with our immigrant histories the policy is not hard, Jim. I mean, we, we, we have crafted policy around this over and over again. We know exactly what we need to do in that bipartisan bill in 2013. I would change some things about it today because we've moved on from where that is. But, um, but I will say that, you know, the way that you secure the United States and preserve our national security is actually to have a functioning immigration system 
where you can keep track of everyone that comes in. You know it's easy for people to come in and go out. We have what's called circular flow migration, which was very popular in earlier decades but has gone away. You don't build walls and bridges. You have uh, borders that are secure, but they're secure because you have systems that allow people to come in and go out, not the other way around. And so um, what we have to do is we have to sort of gulp a few times. If you're in a tough district where Donald Trump is, is, uh, is you know, firing up people based on the immigrant base, and we just have to stop criminalizing immigrants. And we need to pass this policy because it actually threads through everything else. It stays out there as the thing that Donald Trump can go back to, or any president, frankly, can go back to over and over again to try and divide us. And we are not, we should not be a divided country on this because we do have the history, we do have the identity. We just have not done the policy. And the policy is, um, you know, had we put, had we, had we given a path to citizenship back in 2013 or 2014 when that Senate bill passed, um, we would have spent so much less taxpayer dollars on all the things we've been spending in the Department of Homeland Security, and we would have had a far more secure country. Instead, we're just pouring money into things like walls and painting walls black um, when it doesn't make a bit of difference. What we need is a reform of the system. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I try to do, because even in southwestern Connecticut, where my district is, I get people coming to town hall meetings um, using just brutal language um, against the undocumented, um, despite the fact that, as you point out, the economy of the area I represent would come to a grinding halt if the undocumented were to simply disappear. And one of the things I find can be quite helpful, you know, we're going to move on to a discussion of morality and politics, is to reframe and remind people of of values. Um, so when I get somebody stand up and, you know, illegals this and illegals this, first of all, um, we, we, we need to grapple with the attacks of the right wing and the concerns of people. Um, and people are not wrong to say that the system is broken. And when you have 12 million people who are living in the shadows, um, we don't call them illegals, but yes, they are here on an illegal basis, undocumented basis. That's, that is a sort of an affront to the rule of law. So one of the things that I find works in a, in, a, um, in a town hall meeting is I will say, look, immigration policy is really hard and it's really complicated. We have to acknowledge who we are as a country. We have to acknowledge what our economy requires. Um, however, um, you can't come to the public square dehumanizing people, suggesting that um, you know, all immigrants are drug dealers, that they, that they are somehow subhuman, which is the language that is used. And I'll say that is, not, that, that is rejected by your religious faith. And I find that if you can sort of, in that moment, remind people that we are talking about people who are doing things that are not radically different than what your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents said, now some of the fervor leaves the room. Um, and I, I find that appeal to sort of core human values. We're talking about human beings here, not about, you know, not about dehumanized entities. Um, but let's let's dispense. Let's let's grapple for one second with the with the point with certainly the language of Donald Trump and the criticism. Um, uh, a system in which you know on Fox News you would be accused of of supporting and coddling quote illegals terrible language the undocumented. Um, you, we all acknowledge that a system in which there are 12, 11, 12 million people living in the shadows undocumented is a terrible system, right? And question number two is. 
On Fox News, you would be accused, and the president does it all the time, of wanting completely open borders, is what he says. I assume that means, I don't quite know what that means. I assume it means uncontrolled entry by anybody who wants to come in. Can you just address those, you know, Donald Trump Fox News fantasies? Yeah, I go on Fox News quite a bit, and I have to laugh sometimes because, um, you know, I'm never talking to the anchor. I mean, the anchor's job is just to try to get as explosive as possible. But I am talking to the people who watch Fox News because I think people are looking for a new way to think about things. And what I say is, listen, you know, I understand if you're frustrated um, because you haven't been able to find a good job. I mean, before COVID hit, we had the worst income inequality and wealth inequality that we've seen since the 1920s. And so I talk to people about their situation first. And how do we make sure that we're working for everybody in this country to have decent opportunity? Then I talk about how in that moment, when you have that deep inequality, it's really easy to blame somebody. We've all been in this situation before, but don't blame the immigrants. Let's talk about your, think about your immigration story and your family's history. Like you said, Jim, getting people to connect back to the human part of how they came to this country. And then third, you know, in terms of the the border, I, I always find that so funny because we are actually talking about creating a system so that you could know who's coming in and out and allow people to have the beauty of being with their family. I say to Fox News hosts all the time, you guys used to be the party of family values. What ha- happened to family values when you lock kids in cages or you separate um, a child from their parent for 16 years if you're Filipino or 22 years if you're, uh, if you're from some other country? You know, the amount of time that it takes to allow a parent to be with a child in this country, even separate from cages, locking kids in cages, is remarkable. And so if we had a system that functioned, then that's not about open borders. It's about saying that the United States absolutely has the right to determine who is in the country and who isn't. And it should be done according to human rights values and global treaties that we've signed on to. Um, But at the same time, if you don't have that, that is when you really need to worry because not only do you not have what you need for the economy, not only do you not have what you need for, um, for security, but you also don't have what you need for the heart and soul of America, the moral value of America as a nation of immigrants, as a country that shone a beacon of light around the world for people like me to come here um, and for so many other ancestors and, and generations of people to come to the United States. So I find that when I go through that little litany of things quickly, um, I may not get the Fox News host, but I do find that I get a lot of emails from people who are watching Fox News who say to me, wow, I didn't realize that you didn't there wasn't a line. I didn't realize that undocumented immigrants pay social security taxes so that I can go and retire as a U.S. citizen. They are paying my social security taxes. Um, you know, I was buying the stuff that immigrants don't pay taxes and they don't do this and they don't do that. That's just not true. Right, right. Great, great. Good conversation. So, so let's, 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 let's go uh, even deeper here in sort of the substrate of, of policy. Um, and let's talk about morality and politics, because one of the neat things about your book is that, um, you know, part two um, is all about moral vision. You talk about three different policy areas, and it's all about moral vision, this moral vision, and, and your story is suffused with a, 
uh, an awareness and an advocacy for a more moral world. And, and I, I really enjoyed reading it um, because I've spent years thinking about the role of morality in politics, right? And the way what I've been able to sort of figure out over time is that um, politics without morality is a sort of an insane notion, right? I mean, we are here because we have values and people in this country have different values. We share a lot of values, but we have different values. Um, and so morality needs to suffuse everything we do as public servants. But there's a downside to moral framing, which is that on the extreme, it will make us censorious. You know, if you're not quite with my moral vision, well, you're immoral. Um, and it is sometimes, I see this all the time in DC, it's sometimes when we are really aggressive in framing things in moral terms, it makes it very hard to compromise, something that we're not known for in uh, the Congress today, because you can compromise with a libertarian, but you can't compromise with somebody who's immoral. Um, and so I'm really interested in, you know, where and when morality is key and where and when we need to draw back. And immigration is interesting in this regard, right? Because no human can look at family separation. And, uh, and I saw this down on the border, as you did too, where a mother is in a separate cell from their six-year-old daughter. I mean, if that doesn't light fires of moral outrage inside of you, you know, I'm not sure you're alive. On the... Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, though, of course, you know, immigration policy is immensely technical. Um, and so questions of what is the proportion of H-1B visas versus agricultural visas, that kind of stuff doesn't really lend itself to the kind of moral clarity uh, that family separation does. So I'd love to hear you muse, since your book is suffused with this concept of moral vision, um, about you know, where is it essential to the public policymaking process and at what point do you sort of pull back from a moral framing into a more, hey, let's, uh, let's close the door and get a deal done kind of uh, way of thinking about things? Yeah, it's such a great question. And, you know, somebody, one of the reviewers for my book in an interview said, Congresswoman, I'm so, um, uh, I'm so depressed that your first section is called politics and your second section is called moral visions. Do they not go together? And I think this is the question you're asking. And I think that, you know, for me, um, it is clear to me that morality is infused through everything. I don't know what you fight for if you don't know what your own values are. And we can use the, you, we can use the term values because I actually think that um, we share, regardless of whether you're Republican, Independent, or Democrat, I actually believe we share some very core human values, which is we all want the right to be respected. We want opportunity. We want to be treated with dignity and respect. I mean, th those are the kinds of things that um, I talk to universally with Republicans in my district as well. Um, and so I think that the thing we have to remember, Jim, is that our system is not a representative system. It, it, it has, it has uh, led to an unrepresentative government. Now, it's representative in the sense that there are, you know, certain 750,000 people choose you and choose me, and we call that a representative democracy. But if you look at so much of the institutionalized racism and sexism that has pervaded our system for so long, the reality is that the people who are in power, who are making decisions, have a particular perspective of what may be moral or not. And many of the details of our policy, even though it doesn't sound like it, lay the groundwork 
for a continuation of that racism and sexism, and so, or whatever ism it is. And so when you look at these policies, I do think it is very important to keep a North Star there. And I think about our colleague, John Lewis, who just passed away, um, or Elijah Cummings, who also just passed away, both of whom were um, so welcoming to me when I came into Congress. And I remember saying, am I fighting too hard on family separation, but also on immigration, on other things? And they both sort of took me and shook me by the shoulders and said, you keep fighting with that urgency. Because I think sometimes politics gets reduced to the lowest common denominator, the thing that is easiest to move forward most quickly. But that is not actually the thing that gets at the root causes of what is happening, that requires a much deeper analysis and fix to the solution. And so is it, you know, do we need people to agree with us 100% on everything? Of course not, definitely not. Are there technical pieces where you can argue about how many visas here or how many people get covered for healthcare through this means versus another means? Sure, all of those things are real. But what happens is the characterizations of people, for example, the criminalization of the poor or the criminalization of immigrants that happened with welfare reform, those are detrimental to any progress moving forward. And so that's often the thing I think we have to fight about and we don't. You know, when, when we're on the floor and the Republicans want to divide us, what do they do? They use some MTR, motion to recommit for people who, who don't follow every, every piece of what we do, that's focused around criminalization, criminalization of immigrants, criminalization of black people, brown people. And we don't, we are too afraid to take that on and say, you know what, go ahead. You want to you wanna talk about, you know, criminalization? Let's talk about who these people are. Um, we're too afraid of that 30-second ad that might come for tough districts. I mean, I'm not, I understand uh, not every district is a democratic district like mine, um, but I do think that that is where leadership comes in. Because if we don't fix those underlying pieces of recognizing the innate worth of all human beings, um, then that is going to hurt us on any policy we, we try to put forward. Um, yeah, yeah. You, you, you made me think um, uh, about, um, you, you, you talk about the Republicans, and you're right, the MTRs are designed to split a party. They're designed to embarrass individual motions to recommit. By the way, we did it too when we were in the minority. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of sad, and I think we, should, we need to be a little humble about the fact that uh, um, uh, both, both parties bear the blame for the- I think the, they never split though, right? You were there, so you can tell me. But remarkable. The Republicans remarkable. never split on those motions. To, they recognize to, them as, as uh, a word I won't use on C-SPAN, but you know, they recognize them as completely ridiculous and procedural, and they didn't worry about it. Um, whereas yeah, we, no, they, were, they were remarkably, uh, remarkably disciplined. Um, let's, let's um, but as long as we're talking about Republicans, um, in, in my opinion today, um, and, I, and I, when I won in 2008, I won in a Republican district. Um, it has, because it's New England, it's, got, it's gotten gradually more blue. But, um, you know, prior to me in uh, the 4th District of Connecticut, it was, you know, generations of, of Republicans. Um, let's talk about, uh, very briefly, because um, there's, there's so much in your book we need to get to. But, um, you know, what, one of the things that's really disheartening to me about politics today is that, um, 
uh, our Republican colleagues, and we should say both of us have Republican friends. Uh, we actually have good Republican relationships. Um, but it's remarkable to see this party really give over its values um, and its loyalty, not to a set of principles with which we may disagree, you know, um, but to one man, um, one man who has actually taken advantage of the fact that I think Democrats, and you talk about this in your book, um, isolated themselves from some of their traditional constituencies. So without painting too much of a cartoon or a stereotype here, you know, the fact is, I, I think I've seen statistics that suggest that the bulk of the labor movement supported Donald Trump, or at least it was very closely split. How in the world does that happen, right? And I, by the way, I see this when I go to union halls in Connecticut, a lot of pro-Trump sentiment. Um, there's a correlation between education and support for Donald Trump, gender and support of Donald Trump. And again, I know these are very complicated issues and you have very strong feelings about not dividing um, you know, people who are not on the winning segment, not in the winning category here in the United States. But, but it does feel to me like you look at devastated communities in Ohio and, and the post-industrial Midwest, the South, it does feel to me like Democrats dropped the ball and that Donald Trump figured that out and played um, to those communities in a way that we bear some blame for doing. Let, let, me, let me just ask whether you, you agree with yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we totally agree on that. And I talk about it in my book. I've talked about it quite a bit. Um, you know, Donald Trump is both a symptom and a cause. He is a cause of tremendous pain and divisiveness and racism and xenophobia and everything else. Um, but he is also a symptom. He was elected because there were too many people across this country, including those in white working class neighborhoods, but also black folks and brown folks across the country who were disenchanted with uh, Democrats and didn't believe we fought for them. They were confused about our, our, our uh, stance on trade. You know, Donald Trump went right in there, and, and I'm not talking about what he did later, I'm just talking about what he did when he ran for president. He said, I'm gonna fix these unfair trade agreements and I am going to make sure that working people across this country keep their jobs. You know, he talked about uh, opportunity for working people. Democrats took so long to get on board for a living wage. One of the most popular policies across the country. Um, healthcare. I mean, we ran and won on healthcare in 2018, thank goodness, because they've continued to destroy healthcare. But, you know, Donald Trump has made all kinds of noises about what he believes in, making it sound like he's going to fight for the little guy. And Democrats have not done enough to either show that we really are on the side of regular working people, collective bargaining rights. We should have expanded collective bargaining rights 10 years ago, but we didn't. Um, we passed the PRO Act in this Congress, but we should have done that a long time ago and really said to our labor union brothers and sisters and siblings, listen, we're with you. We want you to have a powerful vote, voice for democracy on the job. Um, and so I think that this is the hole that he came into. Now, layer on top of that racism and many other things that he's used, xenophobia, fear of the other, at a time when so much of the country is suffering. If the country was doing well, Jim, some of this wouldn't have worked. But the country was not doing well. 60% of Americans did not even have 400 bucks in their bank account uh, before COVID hit. So this is where he came. And I think for us as Democrats, we have to remember two things going into the next election. Number one, 
that a base is critically important. I saw the polling. Um, you and I are polling for Joe Biden to be president of the United States. I saw the polling on this. It looks like Joe's got Biden's got a big lead on on Donald Trump. But I would say be extremely careful because when they take out likely voters and they factor in for enthusiasm, that lead drops substantially. So don't think that we don't need our base with us. We need young people. We need folks of color in all places because Michigan, we need everybody to turn out. Turnout matters in these places. Um, and then secondly, you know, I think that when Biden is elected president, um, we have to be bold. We have to recognize that austerity spending hurts us, that if we don't invest in people in education, in housing and opportunity and transportation, that we will ultimately worsen these inequalities and there will be an opportunity for another Donald Trump to come and win. So we're gonna have to be bold, we're gonna have to step up and we're gonna have to invest in our communities and then hopefully we keep the White House in 2024. Yeah, I, I, I agree um, fervently that there is a great deal more commonality uh, and agreement across the political spectrum, particularly on economic issues. Um, you know, uh, you and I would have probably slight disagreements on economic policy because we come from different tribes within the Democratic Party. Um, but there's no doubt that, um, you know, those things... Uh, uh, consistent and universal availability of health care, a, a reasonable shot at an education. I don't care where you come from or what your socioeconomic circumstances are. Um, if you can be persuasive around providing that, you're going to appeal uh, to everyone. Um, there, I, I would draw a distinction here, and, and there's a really interesting part in your book that I want to highlight here. I think it's a little harder in the realm of social issues, and I see the Republicans because they recognize that we win if we have an honest economic debate, we win that all day long. I mean, look at their tax plan that you know delivered 83% of its savings to the top 5%. You know, look at their policies. They realize that we win the economic debate if that's the debate. But instead, um, they try to paint the Democrats as coastal elitists that um, are obsessed with gender neutral pronouns and you know uh they use a lot of dark language about people who are differently who worship differently who you know who love differently um and i think that's a little harder conversation and i i see that in my own district sometimes why because we've made incredible progress in this country and sorry this is the light going off in my office <laughs> but we've made incredible i mean we've made head spinning progress acknowledging that we have a long way to go uh, in this country. You know, 10 years ago or 11 years ago, the five-member Connecticut delegation, I don't think anybody was for marriage equality. Um, you know, uh, Barack Obama was famously kind of outed for marriage equality by Joe Biden when Joe Biden was vice president. So we've seen dramatic change. Um, and some of the changes, I think, scary to people who come from more conservative areas than you and I live in. Um, and there's this wonderful page in your book here um, where you talk, you have a, you have a non-binary child um, who wishes to be referred to as they there, you know, and of course the right wing and the Republicans make all sorts of, you know, condescending uh, comments about pronouns and this sort of thing. Uh, and then there's this thing where you, um, you say I should use pregnant people instead of women throughout the piece that you're writing to give acknowledgement that trans and non-binary people who might not identify with the term women could still be pregnant. Um, that shows a great deal of care for people who have traditionally been 
at best marginalized, at worst targeted. But I think you would agree that that, I mean, I, I read that page and I thought, man, this is, this is like a step or two beyond where like I've gone because I hadn't done a lot of thinking about non-binary. And look, I represent Southwestern Connecticut, one of the most liberal places on the planet, socially speaking. So my question at the end of that long speech is, um, how do we make sure that we are bringing people in and saying, saying to ourselves, perhaps, you may not be quite as far along the journey as others, but we want to help you rather than being condescending or attacking you or calling you bigoted. Because quite frankly, I think that's not just what the Republicans say about us, but when a presidential candidate calls people deplorables, uh, when we uh, call somebody who is struggling with these issues bigoted, I think, I think we bear some blame for how we talk about these things too. So again, it's a remarkable page in your book. What, how do we get to people in a graceful and constructive way on social issues? Well, you know, I have this phrase that I say, I always approach life with uh, generosity and abundance, not with scarcity and fear. And I think about that when I talk to people about Janak and about having a non-binary child. And there are many of my friends who are confused about these pronouns. My mother, I mean, my mother is in India and, you know, she took a whole course when Janak came out as non-binary and she still can't get the pronouns right. And it's okay because she loves them. And, um, and so I try to come at it from the love of a parent and to talk about how we want our kids to be free to express who they are. And when people have trouble with that, um, it doesn't necessarily turn me off of them. It doesn't make me judge them because I myself had to go through my own process of just, I still sometimes refer to Janik as he because for 20 years, that's what Janik was. But um, you know, and I, and so I think that sense of understanding and intention is really important. But I also think that everybody wants to be seen, Jim. Everybody wants to be seen and visible for who they are. And those identities are so critical and fundamental to somebody being able to be seen. And so I think we should continue to be strong about it, but be loving and generous and call people in. I try not to judge people. It's why I really had problems with Republicans who were talking about non-binary people in the most dehumanizing of ways. It wasn't just saying, I don't understand this. Somebody explain it to me. They were talking about people in dehumanizing ways. And that is my child. That is unacceptable. So of course I had to speak out. But I also think the other thing is there are so many points of connection and we don't have to agree on everything in order to respect each other. There's, um, you know, I, I'm in a very democratic district, but I'm in a state that has a top two primary, which means that the top two vote getters go on to the general election. So most of the time, I'm facing another Democrat in my elections. And um, it, when I was running for the state Senate, I decided I was running against another Democrat in the general, and I decided that I should go talk to Republicans because they're 20% of my district and poor things, they don't have a Republican to vote for, so why not me? Um, and so I went to talk to them and I have this story in there. I, I, I was, it was a beautiful sunny day. I went out um, to these Republican households and, you know, they were identified on my walk sheet as Republican. And I go up to this one, one guy and he's out there cleaning his Harleys. He's a big burly guy. He's got a bunch of tattoos all over his arms. And I have maybe some stereotypes in my mind about how this conversation is going to go. But I love talking to people no matter who they are. So we end up getting into this wonderful conversation. And guess what? He agrees with me on $15 minimum wage. He agrees with me on collective bargaining. 
He agrees with me on a whole bunch of things. Actually, he even agrees with me on immigration. I don't start with it, but he agrees with me. And then he asks me about guns. And he says, how do you feel about guns? And I say, honestly, I don't like them. But I understand Second Amendment. My husband used to hunt. I don't tell him that my husband is now a Buddhist and a vegan. But, you know, my husband used to hunt. It's true. He used to have guns in his home. Um, And we have a conversation. And it, it becomes clear that we're not going to agree on this issue of guns. I say, I just think it should be responsible. Just like if you drive a car, you need a license. You need, you need to be responsible about your guns. And he says, oh, God, you're one of those Democrats. You're going to take my guns away from me. And so it's time to move on. And I say, can I have your vote? And he says, you know, I was ready to give you my vote. But then we got to the guns conversation. And I just don't think I can do it. I just disagree with you on that. And I said, yeah, I understand. His wife was standing there. I said, how long have you been married to your wife? He says, 23 years. I said, wow, that's amazing. I said, and do you guys agree on 100% of issues? And he guffaws, you know, he laughs. He says, of course not. And I said, well, you married her. I'm just asking for your vote. And he absolutely is still for a moment, cracks up, takes my hand and says, you know what? You're a different kind of politician because at least you tell me what you agree. So I'm going to vote for you, but you try and take my guns away. I'm going to be on your behind. And, uh, and he did vote for me. And so I think that we don't have to have everyone agree with me, but we should be authentic. We should be real. And um, we should be okay with them disagreeing with us just as we might disagree with them. Yeah, that, that's a wonderful story. I really, I really enjoyed it. And I sort of chuckled to myself. It's a good thing that the story broke the way it did with him voting for you rather than him telling his wife 23 years, sorry, honey, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been bad. I don't want to be a marriage breaker. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess we've got sort of seven or eight minutes left. Um, couple, couple of questions. Um, one of the things, and you know, I, I spend a lot of my time um, thinking about how we create cohesion um, in the party. Um, uh, the the different points of view that we have in the party are our strength, and you know people often compa- you know ask me questions. Well, how come your message isn't clear like the Republican message? And I say, look, think about and again, this is a cartoon and a stereotype, but think about what we are as a party. We are a party that includes you know uh, the proverbial educated coastal elites, business, uh, African Americans, Latinos, LGBTQ community, you name it, still a lot of, a lot of the labor movement. I mean, we are this unbelievable, all you need to do is come and look at our, um, uh, our, uh, us sitting on the floor of the House of Representatives. It's just the most unbelievable diversity. Uh, and again, without stereotyping too much, the other party is not. The other party is, if you look, and I'll just put it this way, if you look at the other party on the floor of the House of Representatives, you see almost exclusively white guys, right? So we, I spend a lot of time thinking about cohesion within our party because we don't win if we don't have cohesion. We don't win if we don't embrace our different points of view. And one of the things that was really fun about your book was that your attitude, as you just described, is one of being of being open and welcoming and, and graceful with people of different views. There's one area in which I would say that that tone changes a little bit, which is in the area of Medicare for all. And this, of course, is a very difficult topic. I actually think we mishandle it within the Democratic Party. Why do I say that? You know, pretty much every industrialized country out there does healthcare better than we do. They have a universal and, but you know, Switzerland has private insurance, but wage subsidies. Uh, Great Britain has a nationalized system where everybody works for the government. Japan has a hybrid system. Canada has a hybrid system. The world demonstrates lots and lots of different healthcare systems. Um, Your discussion of Medicare for all, 
I came away from it thinking something that I feel sometimes in inter-democratic debates, which is that um, the progressive wing really thinks that Medicare for all um, is the way. Um, you know, in your discussion here, you, you, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it becomes, um, you say that there are polls out there that are spreading lies about what Medicare for all's uh, moderators asking loaded and biased questions. I got the impression, which was actually discordant with the rest of the book, that, that, and I get this impression elsewhere in, in discussions, in internal discussions in the Democratic Party, that um, the supporters of Medicare for All, and by the way, I, I, should, I should say this, I spend a lot of my time, even though I have some issues with it, defending Medicare for All, because we use it, and lots of other countries use it. It's hardly a radical, exotic idea. But I do, I, I, I did sense a little change up in the tonality when you're talking about Medicare for All. Um, is that because um, this is such a critical issue in which we fall so short of where we should be? Or is it because, and you're, you're more of an expert on healthcare than I am, really that's the system that works for the United States? Well, I think it's two things. I think, um, I really do believe it's a system that should work. And, and by that, I'm not saying that everything that is in my bill, 1384, is the only way. I mean, people would say to me, you know, how come you have a two-year transition, you should have a four-year transition? And I say, listen, Everything in politics, you put the legislation forward and then there have got to be changes. And so if we ever get to the point where we're talking about a two or a four year transition, fantastic. I'm ready to have that conversation. Um, but I think that I do believe that a universal healthcare system that is paid for by the government and that is uh, or that is coordinated by the government, I should say, but the government is the main conduit through which healthcare is guaranteed and that it's not tied to employment, it's not tied to any other factor, that that is absolutely what the United States should do. And that is in fact what most other countries do. Yes, there are some changes here and there and there's some countries that are starting to change in different directions, but most countries do that. And maybe they have a little bit here and there for the private sector. That is not our system today. And the reason for some of what you accurately pick up in that chapter is I have been very frustrated by the attacks on Medicare for All from our own party. So it isn't that people are saying, you know what, Pramila, that is absolutely the goal we should get to. And, you know, let's talk about some of the issues that are here and let's debate them. That's not what happens. People say, Oh, it's absurd. You can't get rid of employer-covered healthcare because healthcare from employers offers so much choice. And for years, Jim, I kept saying, what choice do you have when you lose your job? I mean, I also had a whole yeah. set of things for yeah. what happens, what choice do you have when your employer picks your healthcare, your health insurance company tells you which doctors you can go to and which procedures are covered. That doesn't sound like so much choice to me. Um, the greatest yeah. program with the greatest choice is Medicare. But um, now, nobody is making that argument as 45 million Americans have filed jobless claims and 27 million lost their health care because they lost their job. So, yeah, no, I, I went through the affordable care. You know, that's the frustration I have is that there's this sense that somehow we're naive and idealistic. And then the, the, um, the cost discussion drives me absolutely crazy because I do have a very clear sense of costs and economics. And I can tell you, we keep going with this system and we are going to be paying $50 trillion over the next 10 years. Nobody wants to talk about that. They only want to talk about the cost of, the, uh, uh, of a Medicare for all system, which everybody yeah. acknowledges is less than that. So 
Um, that is the reason for my frustration is that I feel like people within our own party, for whatever reasons, I won't attribute reasons. I have my, my thoughts about it, but for whatever reason, they refuse to acknowledge that our system of healthcare was never a system. And we are seeing it right now with the yeah. COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that African-Americans four times as likely to die as white Americans, Latinos nine times as likely to be hospitalized as, as white Americans, partly because they never had healthcare and they were never able to pay for even the treatments that they needed, which left them exposed with all the underlying conditions that caused COVID to take hold. So it's a travesty to me and I get worked up about it. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I am happy to have the discussion with anybody, but I find that people don't even want to have the discussion and that bothers me. Yeah, no, and, and you know, I tell my constituents all the time, we are the very definition of inefficiency and, 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 a, and immorality because we don't cover everybody and we, we spend far more money for far worse results. Uh, and so, uh, and so obviously something needs to be done. Uh, anyway, uh, great. But I will say just one, one hopeful note there, Jim, for you is, you know, I just finished co-chairing the uh, Biden-Sanders Health Unity Task Force. I did not get Medicare for All. I did not turn Joe Biden into Bernie Sanders. However, <laughs> we made tremendous progress on what we can achieve as a party for our platform. It's not sufficient. I have not changed my mind yeah. about Medicare for all, but we did make tremendous progress in terms of the Biden platform um, for the Democratic Party on achieving universal health care. Yeah, look, you're right. That's how we won in, uh, in, uh, in 2018. Um, and our health care system is a mess. I was in Congress my freshman term when we fought tooth and nail against, uh, for the Affordable Care Act, you know, which is regarded today as incremental. So it's something in which we need a lot of work. Um, uh, we, I think we just need to be humble about the notion. And, and in some circles, just suggesting this, of course, will get, will get me attacked. We need to be humbled about the, motion, uh, the notion that there are a lot of endpoints. Switzerland, Japan, Great Britain, Canada, France, they all do it differently. They all do it better. Um, but I, I, I think if we can uh, you know, overcome the lies, the death panels and all the socialism and all that, we can overcome the lies this is how the Democratic Party reconnects with an awful lot of marginalized population, not even marginalized, but a lot of populations that think we left them behind. But um, I think we're way over time. And I think what I have to do, I've never done this before because I'm not a, a talk show host, but in bookshelves now, <laughs> use the power you have by my uh, good friend and colleague, uh, Pramila Jayapal. Pramila, thank you for a great conversation. Jim, thank you so much for, you know, for, for reading the book and for just having such a wonderful conversation and for everything that you do in your leadership. It's a pleasure to serve with you. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org.